We went from traditional clinical trials where everything was very controlled. The problem with that is that you were then almost making an artificial situation and an artificial patient population versus the way that tech looks at data. You're getting all the data and finding the pattern in that data that is almost the opposite of the way healthcare traditionally looked at it, but it's actually much more reflective of reality. And so I think those are brand new opportunities that will advance the cause of being able to detect and treat people in healthcare. And I think that's really what we want ultimately. Hey everybody, and welcome to The Slice, a podcast about the people behind innovation in healthcare. I'm your host, Justin Barad, co-founder and CEO of OsoVR, orthopedic surgeon, and pizza enthusiast. Each week, we hear the thrilling stories of innovators driving change and improving health around the world. Let's get started. Today on the show, we have Amy Raimundo. Amy is Managing Director at Kaiser Permanente Ventures and brings over a decade of experience from the corporate venture capital and medical device world. Amy is also founder and president of MedTech Women and most recently was appointed to the board of Nuvasive. Congratulations about that, by the way. Thank you. I'm excited. Amy, thank you for being on the show. To kick us off, I mean, you've had an incredible career and continue to have an incredible career, both operationally as an investor in health technology, but your major was in economics. So what drew you to not only healthcare, but healthcare technology in particular? Yeah, it's actually, it's interesting. I started on the science and health side. And so I actually went to college thinking I was going to be a chemist and do drug discovery research and actually worked in a lab for a couple summers. And then, you know, as one finds out in college what you're good at and what you're not good at. <laughs> and so what I found out, actually, thankfully, simultaneously, that maybe I shouldn't be a chemist, but I was actually quite good at economics. <laughs> so I uh, shifted, but never lost the love of the science and the technology. And so wanted to find a way to marry the two. So use my economics, finance brain, but also participate in the healthcare system. So I actually, my first job out of college was doing management consulting for health systems because it was sort of the perfect blend of the two. What drew you to, and then eventually away from chemistry in the first place? Like, how did that happen? I always love science. I think I got exposed to it early, even in elementary school. There was different programs when people come in and talk about pharmaceuticals and healthcare, and it just was an early interest of mine, and it continues to be. And so, you know, it's always in my brain that that's something I wanted to try, something I wanted to do. I took all the science classes and really enjoyed it. And then I love the practical nature of healthcare, the hands-on, helping people, real life part of it. And so I think I've always been like, how do you translate whatever you're doing to have a significant impact on people's lives? And where better to do that within healthcare? You just have to then figure out whatever your functional expertise is that actually contributes to that. That was the journey as opposed to the journey being, where did I want to be? The journey was, how do I want to contribute? I strongly relate to the discovering you're not so good at chemistry <laughs> college phenomenon. That was a, yeah. <laughs> was a bit of a shock for me. There are a lot of options in healthcare and how to help people, especially using business skills and finance. But it seems like initially devices and then eventually technology really attracted your attention. 
Can you talk a little bit about what led you in that direction specifically within the category of health? You know, I think it was my early experience doing my management consulting work. And I think there was probably two pieces of it that drew me to technology. One is I was working on clinical guideline development with a group of physicians and nurses and technologists, and just going through the process of reviewing the literature, figuring out what was the right set of things for which patients, and really facilitating that discussion among the clinical experts, I thought was just really interesting and valuable. And then the other was a little, it was a different experience, which was we used to download a bunch of data from the servers at the hospitals. We would then ship that data in cassettes to our processing place in Massachusetts and then wait three months for it to go through to then bring it back, go through this process and then create, and I'm dating myself here, paper order sets that lifted the information, brought it to sort of the point of decision-making for the physician and really the literature behind it. And one night we realized the data was wrong. And I think I was in Arkansas and I had to fly to Massachusetts. I slept under a desk (laughs) that night to keep the thing processing so that I could fly back on Monday with new data. And it just brought home for me the power that being able to do that rapidly and to surface information and analytics rapidly (laughs) could actually impact the way that we care for people. And so it was a very early sort of awakening just because, you know, you're sleeping under a desk and you realize (laughs) that hopefully we'll get to a better way. This was mid 90s. So you understand it took a while. But that was really, I think, the beginning of it because we were using data, we were using information, but it was such a lag between when it was generated and how it was used that you could understand just from human decision making that if you surfaced it easily, quickly, that had a huge impact. I have just an incredible image in my head, like you under this desk being like, something needs to change. (laughs) I can't keep doing this. That story resonates with me. Obviously, EMRs are favorite punching bag in healthcare of just like technology gone wrong. But at the same time, sleeping in the basement of a hospital wake up at 3 a.m. and they're like, hey, you have to X this thing, get a fax back, and then go upstairs to the eighth floor and put it in a a binder that's gone missing. You have to find it. Then, you know, hopefully the two hours it took to a single piece of paper and you can get some sleep. And it's, you can just do it with the click of a button. And it doesn't work smoothly or as well as it could by any means, but it definitely has been an improvement in some respects. Yeah, and I think it's foundational. Like it is not the end, but it, it was an important foundation that we then continue to have to improve upon to really be able to get that information now in the flow and make things frictionless. I mean, we talk about frictionless in our day-to-day lives now with our smartphones and our iPads and laptops and everything else we're doing in every other section. And I think it's trying to move that frictionless into healthcare because it, again, makes for better decision-making, quicker decision-making, quicker learning. That is really a lot of the opportunity. It just always takes a little bit longer to get into healthcare, as I as I noted, that actually my business school application back in 2000 <laughs> was all about what's now considered digital health, because that was where the dot com and really the change that was happening more broadly. You could imagine where that could really impact healthcare. It just took 20 more years <laughs> to get there. 
Do you think where you got your MBA had an influence on role and view of technology? And it's interesting that you have kind of Ivy League and then kind of Silicon Valley for those experiences. Yeah, and that was by design on the MBA. I mean, I grew up in New Haven, so I was a townie <laughs> for Yale and absolutely loved the school. But then I was drawn West. And then when I got West, I really liked innovation, new thinking, what could we do better differently? And so that's why I wanted to stay in the Bay Area where a lot of that was happening. But I think that's always been true about what I seek out is like, how do we do things better? And so it felt like a natural place to be and to get that exposure because you're right, you get a lot more exposure to that kind of thinking and that kind of focus in the student body and the professors and the people that come in to speak. Speaking of innovation and doing things differently, as you start to move into medical device and healthcare technology and, and have just incredible run of experiences, in a picture for us, like you know, what the industry was like when you were getting started and just dynamics, some of the challenges that you saw, because we're going to talk a little bit about medtech women and what you were able to do, but I'll things spark that. Imagine you experienced or saw something and you're like, once again, had an under the desk moment, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost inverted. So I joined Guidant and Guidant had a wonderful set of female leaders. I think at one point, like half the management team were women. I had leaders like Ginger Graham and Maria Saints and Bev Huss and Lisa Earnhardt. And my colleagues were a mix of men and women. And I was like, oh, this is normal. <laughs> it's actually when I left Guidant that I was like, whoa, where did all the women go? <laughs> And so I had the experience because I went into venture capital after Guidant and had the experience where I walked into my first board meeting as the senior associate. And I was like, huh, I am literally the only woman in this room and I will be the only woman in this room the whole time. <laughs> and it's funny because it, it comes in a funny story. My mom, who is always making sure her daughter's being appropriate, asked me, oh, what'd you wear? <laughs> and I said, you know, whatever I wore. And she said, well, what did the other women wear to make sure that I was in step? And I was like, hey, no other women. No. <laughs> so that for me was sort of the awakening, you know, and I was probably in my early 30s. And that was really the first time I'd had that experience because the consulting firm I had worked for had a lot of female leaders. Guidant had a lot of female leaders. And then even the venture fund that I joined had a female healthcare partner, female general counsel. So like it really was sort of the first awakening, but then it became more and more prominent and then also hit, I think, in the financial crisis even more. It seemed like both from podium presence, but then particularly in venture capital, I was seeing a receding as opposed to progress. Because I always thought, oh yeah, we're just marching forward in history. And suddenly we were taking backward steps <laughs> in history. And for me, that wasn't acceptable. And if you see a problem, you do something about it. It's sort of my general philosophy. You don't complain about it, you do something. And so that's really the genesis of MedTech Women. And then Deb Kilpatrick, the CEO of Evidation, was my first reach out. I was just sitting in a conference and sent her a text and said, hey, this isn't okay. <laughs> and we're doing something about it. To her credit, we are wired similarly. She's like, I'm in. And MedTech Women was born. And now it's been a decade. 
Well, it's incredible. A lot of my friends have participated, have benefited directly from it. It is a huge influence in the industry. Was the problem, is it just everywhere within medical technology or is it more on the venture side? Is it more on the device side and larger companies? And then maybe now that we've had some track record, how are things looking these days? It's a little bit of everywhere. Large companies, small companies, venture funds, are all trying to figure out how to address it. Because I think part of it is really trying to understand it, trying to do positive things to advance the ball. And people try different things. And to the credit of our sponsors, starting from Covidian and Abbott were early sponsors because they understood that you, know, you look at their numbers and their leadership numbers weren't where they needed to be. And I think it's a lot of it trying to understand, okay, what do you do differently that changes that dynamic. And I think a lot of people didn't know, and it wasn't for lack of wanting a better outcome. And so we were a positive thing that they could do. And we were really focused on two things. I mean, one was content. MedTech Women is not about being a woman per se. It is about female experts and advancing their careers. And part of advancing your career is really getting to know other experts, advancing your knowledge in a field. And so we really focused on that. And that allowed us then to inspire people. We knew we were on the right track after the first conference we held because people walked out inspired to do more to be more because one is they were learning things, they were invigorated, they felt good about themselves. And then they were seeing women at the top of their game and saying, yep, that's right. That is who we are. And that's what we want to do. And then, you know, if you're managing a company or managing a firm, boy, you want your employees and your leaders and everybody else coming back from something like that going, yeah, I'm signing up for more. I want to do more. I want to reach further for my career. And I think that was really the point. It was sort of lifting up this group of leaders who were raising their hand saying they want to do more. That's amazing. I think it probably goes beyond just the group who goes to MedTech Women. I feel inspired by what you guys do. And in my field of orthopedic surgery, this has been a rather kind of elephant in the room type issue that is improving somewhat. But I think in 2014, 4% of practicing orthopedic surgeons were female, which is kind of like... wow. Insane, wow. yep. like an insane number, right? right. <laughs> like, people are studying this, like what is going on? And there was a lot of early work in, well, maybe our selection practices are, are not equitable or need to be more blinded or how can we, and what it turned out is that people weren't even applying in the first place. And they found that people didn't even think that they, they could do it or would want to do it or even knew about the field. And that when you expose medical students earlier to orthopedics, they were more likely to apply because they're like, wow, this is really cool. Especially, yeah, I mean, imagine if you can introduce them to other female orthopedic surgeons that are doing it. And I see this everywhere. And I think this is true, especially in healthcare, that people who are like doctors, the joke is who in your family is a doctor or if you're in healthcare <laughs> right. technology, like you probably know someone who does that. But most people, their family members are not doctors and people in their neighborhoods are not going to be plastic surgeons. So they don't know that these careers exist or they can't envision themselves doing them. So the idea of seeing someone that is like you and being like, oh, wow, if they can do it, I can do it, you know, and, and that is such a that's such a powerful motivating force. It's, it's kind of wild to me. I feel like we've we're really even just starting to scratch the surface. 
I totally agree. There's an element of exposure and an element of visibility associated with that. And you do frankly want it early. I've been involved a bit in Girls Inc., which is an organization that, again, inspired me actually after I started MedTech Women, because if professional women are affected by what they see and that inspires them or makes them believe they can't be something. You back that up to high school, junior high and elementary school, people are completely influenced by what they see and whether or not that inspires an interest or makes them think, oh, that could be me. If that person looks like me, that comes across as gender, race, ethnicity. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. And I think we underestimate the power of that. I mean, even I have to say, like as a high school student, I was the only member of my AP math class and the only member of my AP chemistry class that was a girl. And I had one teacher ask me if I wanted to do it because I was going to be the only girl. And I was like, come on, <laughs> of course I do. But it gets in your head. And that's just a small example. And if that's getting in your head at that level, imagine at a much grander scale or a much more persistent scale. I probably think more about my middle and high school teachers than I should, like kind of like <laughs> the ones that encourage you, but also the ones that didn't believe in you. And you're like, I'll show you, you know, and like, decades later, I'm like, I'm like, oh, what was their name again? I got to go tell them I did it. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, but it's true. And it's a good, I think when it shakes you, it's actually useful because you know, therefore, that it can shake other people and the human condition and how important inspiring and supporting people is. I have benefited from some of those missteps from my teachers, <laughs> as well as many, many, many teachers that were incredibly encouraging. <laughs> A little chip on your shoulder never hurt anyone. That's right. <laughs> we're seeing this with every year in normal times, we're doing an event with the U.S. Department of Education and with high school kids, middle schoolers, and we're running them through these very realistic surgical training experiences. I hope we haven't traumatized anybody, but every time <laughs> they'll, they'll take off these headsets and they're like, mom, dad, I want to be a surgeon. You know, it's like the first thing. And I'm like, oh, there, there's so much here to be discovered of the power of inspiration. And I just don't think we're focusing enough on trying to inspire others. Like this stuff really does have a very real world effect. So you've worked at these really very, very large companies, like huge. And then you move into more nimble roles, like at Evidation, where you're really operational, really fast moving. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience at Evidation? And then what does it feel like being at a company like Guidant or Medtronic versus a company like Evidation, where nothing exists and everything's software, but it's incredibly valuable and incredibly fast moving and, and such a cool, different company. I mean, everybody there is an amazing person. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because, yes, I have moved from small to large to small to large. <laughs> For me, the mindset of that is they're just different ways to have a big impact. In a small organization, you're a small group that can move fast as opposed to a big unit slowly, but hugely. And so I think my mindset can do one or the other. And it's just you have to employ different processes and different thought processes for that. When I think about Evidation, where we started was in a windowless room. <laughs> there, I think, were seven of us sitting around a U-shaped table 
with what I would call cath lab lighting because it was just bright <laughs> and literally just sitting there like plugging away with each other and like lifting up your head and saying, hey, what do you think of this? Or what should I put in here? And you're just like plugging away with your different things and then sneaking off to do phone calls to you know, really just get the gears going and just deploying all your skills and including some of your skills of, you know, like, hey, who picks up lunch? You know? <laughs> I just want to plug ordering lunch well is an important life skill. It's <laughs> and the other non-trivial. is Task Rabbit <laughs> to come in and set up all your office chairs because that was the other thing is they all showed up unassembled. <laughs> Yeah, and so that's like, it's almost like a tiger team that may exist within a larger organization, but there's just, you know, you're not asking permission from anyone and you just deal with lack of infrastructure, but you also then don't have to deal with process that's associated with infrastructure. So it's, you know, there's always just trade-offs there, but I've always picked where I've worked by the people that work there. And so those people exist in large companies. Those people exist in small companies. Some are the same people. So Deb Kilpatrick and I worked at Guidan together and then Evidation together. And it's sort of like, you know, you told in college to pick the class by the professor. I'm a huge believer is pick the job by the people you work with, because it just makes everything more enjoyable, but more impactful, ultimately, at the end of the day. In residency, when we're selecting residents, probably the biggest criteria is like, hey, it's you know three in the morning, you haven't been home in over 24 hours, things are not going well, and you look to your left, and does the person that you see there put a smile on your face, you know, or are you just like, ugh? <laughs> At the end of the day, like I remember there was literally a guy that <laughs> was like the most impressive person anyone's ever met. This is probably going to be like the next big leader in our field. But I don't think I could work with him. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, we, in consulting, we had the airport test because you're flying all over the place. And do you want to get delayed in the airport with this person for five hours? <laughs> and, you know, that was actually a very good test. Yeah, no, it's the age-old question, team versus talent. Ideally, you can have both, but sometimes it feels like you're selecting from like, do I want that 10Xer or do I want someone that's going to work well with the team? And if people get along together, you're going to get a lot more done than if you have some sort of superstar diva kind of situation. Yeah, I wouldn't put them in opposition to each other in terms of team versus talent, because I feel like you can get both, but you'll get so much more out of the talented person if they work well with others. That's a multiplier effect. A lot of people that can be quite smart can be a 0.5 multiplier. <laughs> and that's not that effective. So one more question about Evidation. Do they have Windows now? They do have Windows now. Okay, yes. okay, good. So things, <laughs> things are looking up. <laughs> yes, it was, it was an improvement, but boy, that was a tough start. <laughs> Both first and second office had no Windows, by the way. We didn't upgrade right away. I think startups and technology are much more mainstream now, obviously, but I still don't feel like people really know what they're like. It sounds like so exciting and so cool, and they are. But there's a whole side to it that it just, it, it just, I don't think it lands with people and then they walk in the door and they're like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Because, well, there, there is an element, I would say the two things that struck me the most, one is there is an element of chaos because you're on the front edge. You're learning something every day. 
in every moment of every day, it feels like that may or may not affect your strategy. It may or may not affect what you're doing. And you've got constantly make a ton of decisions you sort of every day with new information. And that's just the nature of the beast because you're trying to do something new. And then for me, it was the roller coaster of... I'm brilliant. I'm a moron. I'm brilliant. I'm a moron. That you you know, you just up and down sometimes in the same day. That part I didn't know was coming, but is so I think universal. (laughs) That is just like all too real. Too real for me right now. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, same day roller coasters definitely. uh, I've experienced that. So speaking of being on the frontier and the cutting edge, you've really seen firsthand our industry start to transition from the so-called metal and plastic to software. How do you see the industry evolving? How is software changing the device industry? And do you think that device companies that are saying that, oh, we're tech companies now, that they're going to be able to sort of morph? Or or are you going to see something like Evidation kind of take over as the next big thing where you get this new generation of Medtronics and J&Js and Guidance? Where I'm personally focused is the digital transformation. So I'm going to be biased here in terms of where I see the next big area breakthrough in healthcare. Because I think it is that efficiency component of it. There's always going to be a place for metals and plastics, <laughs> as you said, and stimulation. I think there's still a huge frontier around the nervous system and our understanding of that. But I also think that there is just a whole element of care delivery and optimization associated with clinical management, associated with understanding what's happening when you're not in the OR or being able to train. I used to travel around with, you know, a plastic model (laughs) and go to conferences across the ocean to get an opportunity to train somebody briefly. If you can train people on new technology more efficiently, more rapidly with higher reps, you get better outcomes. There's a lot of different ways to have an impact that goes beyond the metal and plastic that I think are largely untapped, but very much enabled and facilitated by the ability to leverage software and digital because you're breaking down boundaries around geography. You know, historically, you had to replicate the expertise and physically put it close to a patient. Information is moving so rapidly at this point and advancing so rapidly that there's got to be other ways to advance that into the care delivery process. That's really what gets me excited is that you can, you know, you're no longer bound by brick and mortar. You're no longer bound by geography. And when I started and slept under desks, (laughs) you were. Yeah, I think... Obviously, people are very comfortable with technology now, but you still see even in mainstream society, things like NFTs and cryptocurrency, where people are like, this doesn't exist. I don't understand. Like, how can this be valuable? And I think that to me in healthcare is still, it is certainly changing dramatically. But I see people in the medical technology industry, they look at this stuff and they're like, there's nothing I can see. I don't understand. How can this provide value? How can this be valuable if it's not there, if I can't assess it? When you have this giant infrastructure of people who are all highly trained their whole lives to look at a catheter or a piece of plastic or even stimulators. And it's like, this is valuable, but something that is just exists in our minds or or in electrons and bits, uh, not so much. Yeah. And I would say that it's interesting when you say, you know, what I see, because where I see an opportunity is by and large in the clinical community, they only see patients for a very short amount of time, but 
people are experiencing their lives and their health all the time. And so I think that is where this ability to see differently really is an opportunity. Now, you know, when you talk about evidation, a lot of it was we went from traditional clinical trials where everything was very controlled, like you controlled the patient set, you controlled the setting because you were really trying to find that signal by taking away the noise from the trial. But the problem with that is that you were then almost making an artificial situation and an artificial patient population versus the way that tech looks at data. You're getting all the data and finding the pattern in that data finding a pattern in that noise that is enabled by compute, is enabled by new approaches that is almost the opposite of the way healthcare traditionally looked at it, but it's actually much more reflective of reality. And I think that is a whole new opportunity to be able to say, hey, this is happening. I can A, detect what's happening for someone. I can see progress in a different way. I can see a progress in the real world. And so I think those are brand new opportunities that will advance the cause of being able to detect and treat people in healthcare. And I think that's really what we want ultimately. It's sort of a whole new paradigm. It just takes a while to get there because you've got to do all the rigor associated with it. It's not the same thing as the classic tech, move fast and break things. You can't do that in healthcare. <laughs> Don't break things. <laughs> it's, it's happened a couple of times. It's not helping any of us. So I'm not no. going to say Theranos. But, <laughs> but that's the dream. I mean, it's such an exciting picture. It's It was really interesting in the early days of this all where people are like, more data is better. And on the receiving end as a physician, you're like, Whoa, oh my God, what do I do with all of this? I don't even know how to interpret it. It's definitely a little bit of a reset of like, okay, how do we make this useful and actually improve outcomes for patients? I'm so excited to continue to see progress there. In addition to all of your incredible work in corporate venture capital, you then moved on to Kaiser Permanente Ventures, which is where we met. You were a partner there at a really interesting time in healthcare technology because there's been so much promise in digital health and so much excitement around it. It was a great idea, but nothing was really landing. And all of a sudden, over the past couple of years, it just felt like an explosion. You were really there firsthand to be a part of this and, and be a big driver of, of that whole dynamic. So you have your operational side and then as an investor, how did you like one versus the other and what were the differences? I have to say, I like going between the two because on the operational side, you get what feels like the ground truth. Like what's really happening? What are the big both stressors and opportunities? What is motivating people to act the way they are? Because that helps you then interpret as an investor, you know, what's going to take off and when. I mean, you're, you know, none of us have crystal balls, but it would be great to have one. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, for me, it's like a touchstone. And that was, you know, a lot of the draw associated with going to Kaiser Permanente because it was there's things are changing and I really want to understand why certain things are getting adopted, certain things aren't. And, you know, what's drawing it because you knew the promise, you know, the 50,000 foot view of digital health, of digital transformation, but certain things weren't going anywhere. When you hear, and then as an investor, you hear pitches and you're like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's really important to have this sort of operational level touchstone to why is something going to happen and why is something not going to happen? Because then for me, again, sort of my central thing is I want to impact change and I want to have an influence on that. So for me, it's, you know, what do you as an investor deploy capital to? Because you think that thing is going to actually advance to a point where it's going to have an impact. And so understanding what those obstacles and accelerators are is critical for that. I think as someone who has pitched to many investors, including you, I think our world, like you you add in healthcare alone is complicated enough. And then you add healthcare technology on top of that. I think we underestimate that complexity and, and I think people overestimate their ability to understand it. So pitching to someone who just doesn't even know what the words mean, it, it just, you know, it feels like running uphill on a, just a rocky mountain sometimes. Well, and that's, I have to, you have to say, was one of the reasons I wanted to join Evidation because I wanted, you know, at that point, you know, it was 2015 now. Yes, 2015. That, you know, I really, it was sort of what is really possible on the tech side. Cause that was the other thing is like hearing the words and hearing people throw them around on the tech side, but not actually understanding at the visceral level, like the under the desk level or the, in the airport level. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use like, that. What, is, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? What is possible? And then marrying that with my knowledge about the healthcare system, because I think both sides were talking to each other with incomplete knowledge about the other side. And I think that's the exciting part is if I can, you know, if I can understand what's possible on the technology side, my brain can incorporate oh, that's going to work. This stakeholder needs that for this reason. This regulatory system will accept it because of this, you know, or not. But I think that's the deeper we can get. And that's the touchstones of really understanding, you know, has always been a motivator for me. Well, it's been an incredible conversation. There's one more question I need to ask you that we ask every guest on the show is if you could only have one kind of pizza for the rest of your life, what would it be? Yeah, so that's an easy question since I did grow up in New Haven, Connecticut, the epicenter of all pizza. So it's Pepe's Pizza and pepperoni is my favorite. So this is the second Pepe's we've had on the show so far is back to back. Yeah, we have other all going to be Pepe's. Whoever uh, they are, yes. <laughs> unbelievable. All right, great. Well, uh, and then if you're curious, I had Lucifer's Pizza in Los Angeles yesterday. It was very delicious. So. Excellent. I will check that out the next time I'm down there. Always looking to explore healthcare technology and the pizzas of the world here. Well, Amy, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I've known you for a couple of years now, but I learned so much about all the incredible experiences you've had and how much you've learned. So Amy, thank you again for being a part of this. Great. Thanks, Justin. It's been fun. Wow, that was quite the story. Had everything from sleeping under a desk to founding the first MedTech women's group that has been transformational and then spearheading some of the most exciting technologies in medicine today. I don't know about you guys, but I am insanely inspired by Amy's story. I know that you just got to listen along, but meeting her, I have to say, is even better than it sounds. I'm really energized by just all of the walls that she's broken through, both from a technology perspective and on behalf of women everywhere. She's just really a true hero, humbled and excited that we were able to have someone like Amy on the show. Any technology that she's going to be investing in or supporting, I would follow very closely if you're either interested in successful businesses or improvement in healthcare delivery all around the world. 
Thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to know about the latest episodes, updates, and resources in the world of medtech, make sure to follow The Slice anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Follow OsoVR on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit us at our website at osovr.com. Special thanks to our producers, Rachel Roberts, Sterling Shore, and Shauna Davis. I'm your host, Justin Broad, and we'll see you next time on The Slice.